Amen. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Can you name the play? Romeo and Juliet, right? A lot of head shaking. Yeah, you, you know that one. Maybe that's as far as your Shakespeare goes, but most of you recognize that line. Uh, this play, Romeo and Juliet, the story really is about two young lovers, two uh, youths, you might say, who are from two warring families. Juliet is a Capulet and Romeo is a Montague. Juliet knows that the family feud prevents her from loving a Montague, but she loves Romeo nonetheless. In fact, it's only his name that is a nemesis. Romeo is what he is, well, despite his name. If he had any other name, it would be, of course, fine. So Juliet wrestles with his name. What's Montague? She declares, what's in a name? The famous line, that which we call a rose by any other name, would smell as sweet. If we were to rename anything, it would do nothing to change its fundamental qualities. A name is just that. It's a name. Even something as sweet as a rose. If we were to call a rose by any other name, well, it would still be just as sweet. It would still be just as vibrant in color. So, Juliet desires that Romeo might take off his name, might strip himself from the name Montague, from that title, and become hers. There's no doubt this is some of the best storytelling. In fact, it is. Yet, Juliet does raise a good question. What's in a name? Although she makes a valid point, a rose is still a rose by any other name, a person's name can be very significant. Sometimes we can learn something about a person's history from the, their, the name they're given. For example, you might know Smith was given to blacksmiths or tinsmiths, people that worked on metal and other things. A cooper was given to a person who worked on wooden barrels. And you probably know a fletcher is a person who worked on what? Arrows, right? I don't know if you put a lot of thought into the names of your kids or if your parents put a lot of thought into your name, but the Bible does suggest that names are very significant. If we were to study the biblical names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how each of these names were given to these men, they do say something about where these men came from and what God was going to do with these men. Their names are significant. There's no better place to argue that there's something special about a name than in the name of God. I'm not sure if you know this or not, but God does have a name. Not the title like Lord or God or even Father or the name given to the Son of God, Jesus, not that name. But God has a, a higher and a most holy name. The Bible actually doesn't give us the name of God until the book of Exodus. And it's there that God reveals his name to a man named Moses. Moses himself doesn't even know God's name until he has to ask God, what is your name? And of course, God responds with this phrase, 
I am who I am, or I am. That's God's name. And you probably know that in Hebrew, we say this as Yahweh, which is the most holy name for God. Yahweh, which is just that little phrase, I am. That's what it is. So then, Juliet, what's in a name? Well, when we speak about God or when we're talking about God, there's a lot that's in a name. That's because God's name says something about his being. His name is a a declaration of his character, his person, who he is. What God's name declares is that, well, quite simply, he is. God was never or could Nor could he ever be anything else. He could only be God because he is God. Therefore, the God of the Bible, the one true God, is, as we say, the great I am. If you would, please stand. I'm going to read our passage this morning. It comes to us from John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 22 through 59. Hear the word of the Lord. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I, have come, for I have come down from heaven, nor to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day." For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, they said. 
Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be all taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us this flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and as I live, and I, excuse me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I do appreciate your strength for that long reading. As I've said, our big idea this morning is this, two life-changing truths. Actually, I haven't said it yet. Let me back up. As we come to the pages of Scripture and the, this record of the life of Jesus, we are amazed, no doubt. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. We read that Jesus was born of a virgin, that He had the power to heal the sick and to raise the dead. In the opening verses of this very chapter that we've read from this morning, Jesus fed a, a, a crowd of thousands with five barley loaves and two fish, and he also walked on water. And while this passage we just read doesn't contain any miracles, it is just as amazing. It offers us, and this is our big idea, two life-changing truths that lead us into life-changing hope for the future. Again, two life-changing truths that lead us into life-changing hope for the future. So that's our goal this morning. That's what we're going to unpack. Now, there's a lot going on in the passage that we've just read. There's a lot here to talk about and to pull apart. And, and I'm actually not this morning going to do that. I'm not going to unpack every detail. Although it is our practice here at RBC to mostly unturn, overturn every stone in a passage, I'm going to leave some of the stones unturned this morning. And I'm going to attempt to draw out what I believe is one of the major themes of this text, which conveniently, I believe, relates to Resurrection Sunday. That's why I've chosen this passage this morning. If you are visiting with us this morning, we are actually currently studying the Gospel of John, and this is the next passage up 
for us in our study. And so most of you are very familiar with the context of this passage. This chapter, as I've said, contains two miracles, as John likes to call them, two signs. The first is the feeding of the 5,000, and the second is Jesus walking on the water. It's the first sign that gives us the context for the speech that is delivered by Jesus in verses 22 through 59, which we just read. As the passage begins, the crowd, they're searching for Jesus, and they found him at Capernaum. Jesus uses their search to reveal their unbelief. Look at verse 26 again. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, that is the feeding of the 5,000, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. These people only sought Christ outwardly. They failed to grasp what it means to truly follow Jesus. It's this unbelief that Jesus is confronting through this entire passage. And I believe the words offered in this section from Jesus are really some of the hardest words ever given to us by Jesus. This is a very difficult passage. These are very difficult words for people to hear. Notice Jesus uses the formula truly, truly four times in this passage. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Then in verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And finally, in verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you, which might be one of the hardest things Jesus ever said. This formula typically expresses a resistance by the hearers. He's saying, truly, truly, believe this. The idea is that they don't. He's calling them to believe. Although Christ does use the formula in other places. He doesn't often use it in such a public discourse, which says there's a lot of resistance here that he's speaking into. What's so hard about this message, you might ask? Well, the answer to that question reveals our first life-changing truth, and it's this. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is the great I am. You may have also noticed the phrase, I am, is found in this passage four times. Look again at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And then verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, they're quoting him here, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And then in verse, verse 48, I am the bread of life. And finally in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You may know that John's gospel or his biography is the only one that records what we call the I am sayings of Christ. Seven times John records these sayings from Jesus, I am, and then followed by some kind of metaphor. These seven sayings are, here we have, I am the bread of life. 
We read, I am the light of the world, chapter 8 and chapter 9. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. And finally, he says, I am the vine. What exactly is Jesus communicating in these statements? Well, he's certainly giving us special insight into who he is. These statements are, are more than mere metaphor. Yes, Jesus is like bread, and he's like light, and he's like a door. For sure, he's like all those things. But even more, Jesus is Yahweh. He is the great I Am. Setting aside the distinctions of the Trinity, it was Jesus who declared to, to Moses in Exodus 3.15, I am who I am. This means that when Christ speaks to us, it is God speaking to us. Christ's words are God's words. Christ's actions are God's actions. And our response to Christ, well, is our response to God. And when Jesus, the one who is, who always was, and who will forever be, when he links himself with a metaphor, well, I think we ought to pay attention. What is he trying to communicate? Well, this phrase from Jesus, I am the bread of life, is neither an attempt to be flowery or highfalutin, nor is it an attempt to be cryptic or to be abstract, not at all. This phrase offers life-changing truths in the most powerful and I would say clear way possible. What is bread? Well, bread sums up life. It, sum, excuse me, it sums up food in general. Genesis 3.19, the ground is cursed and Adam is told, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. It captures everything that we need for sustenance in life, everything for our physical life. What we just had was, I know it was eggs and bacon and other things, but what it was was bread. It was what we need for physical existence, food. It has been called the staff of life. This is bread. It represents all that is needed for physical existence. Well, what is life? Whatever Jesus means by it in saying, I am the bread of life, it must mean more than mere physical life. Jesus says in verse 51 that whoever eats this bread will live forever. That won't make us live forever, unfortunately. We need more. The life that Jesus speaks of is more than the number of our days. Jesus is speaking of a new kind of life. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In this physical life, we're not far from eating, and yet we're hungry again. We've returned from a vacation, and what do we do? We plan the next vacation. C.S. Lewis said, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough. I can take Saturday and ride 100 miles on my bike, and yet Tuesday morning, I'm up riding again. We had a wonderful Easter breakfast this morning. 
And yet, what have you all planned this afternoon? A dinner. And what will you do tomorrow morning? You'll eat breakfast. I think you get the idea. In this phrase, I am the bread of life, we find no higher life-changing truth. We have the, the great I am, the God of the universe, revealing the highest and most important truth, namely, that Christ is our sustenance. He is our satisfaction. Every longing find its en- finds its end where? In Christ. He is the bread of life. Barclay writes, Jesus is the essential without which real life can neither begin nor go on. But once we know him and accept him and have received him, all the unsatisfied longings, all the insatiable desires of the heart and soul are gone. The hunger and thirst of the human situation are ended when we know Christ and when through him we know God. The restless soul is at rest. The hungry heart is satisfied. I don't know about you, but that reminds me of one of the greatest sentences ever written. It was written by Augustine who wrote, Because you have made us for yourself, speaking to God, because you have made us for yourself, our hearts are restless till they find our rest in thee. It's a profound sentence. And our hearts are restless until we do what? Until we eat from the bread of life. This passage will teach us what it means to eat from the bread of life. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Jesus says to the crowds, you have seen me. This is where it begins. You and I have to see Jesus. Of course, we don't see as the crowds saw Jesus. In our day, we see Jesus in the New Testament. We see Jesus in the teachings of the church. We see Jesus in the acts of Christians who demonstrate the love of Christ in their deeds. That's where we see Jesus. But seeing Jesus is not enough. We have to come to him. Jesus says it three times in this chapter, verse 35. I keep coming, coming back to this verse. It's a wonderful verse. Jesus said to, him, to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever does what? Comes to me shall not hunger. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus is not a figure we look to. He is a person we come to. Jesus is not a pattern to follow. He is someone to pursue. In coming to Jesus, we, we believe in Him. And to believe in Him is to accept Him as the final authority. It's to believe He is who He claims to be, which is the great I Am. And it's precisely this process of seeing Jesus, coming to Jesus, and believing in Jesus that results in life. Verse 40. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. 
So, as we've already said, the life that Jesus offers is one of satisfaction. Verse 35 again, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, this translation here has shall not hunger and shall never thirst. But the negation in the Greek is the same in both places, and it's very emphatic. What Jesus is saying is the one who comes to me will never, never go hungry. The one who believes in me will never, never be thirsty. That's what Jesus is saying. There is no room left for spiritual hunger after seeing, coming to, and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean we won't desire to grow in godliness and expand our understanding. Of course we will. As believers, if we come to Him, we'll hunger for Him. But that hungering will never go unsatisfied. He'll give us what we need. This is such a wonderful book. If there's anything John has given us in this wonderful gospel, it's the most amazing portrait of Christ. The book relentlessly testifies to the wonder of Christ. And we haven't even hardly gotten into it. We're only in chapter 6. From the opening words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To the magnificent miracles, water into wine, the healing of the official son, the healing of the paralyzed man, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on the water. From the midnight conversation with Nicodemus to the very public meeting with a Samaritan woman, and from the clearing of the temple to the declaration that Moses wrote of Christ, the weight and power of this gospel moves us to respond. All of this. And then we have these wonderful words from Christ, I am the bread of life. It's an appeal. The hands of Jesus are outstretched. They're reaching out. They're inviting us to come to him, to partake and to eat from him. It's Christ that divides all men. There are those who have partaken of him and know the satisfaction that he brings, and then there is everyone else. These have never found true inner satisfaction. Yes, you might find joy in something, but it is fleeting. It's like that breakfast. If you've never eaten from the bread of life, then you need to ask the question asked in verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What do we do, Jesus? Help me understand. And verse 29 gives us the answer, and it's quite simple. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's belief. Partake of the bread of Christ. I don't know if you've heard the poem by Myra Brooks Welch, her famous poem, The Touch of the Master's Hand. It's about an old violin. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but held it up with a smile. But what am, what a, but what am I to bid, good folks, he cried. Who will start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two? Only two? Two dollars? And who, who will make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no. 
From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening and lo- and tightening the loosening strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as an angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow, A thousand dollars, and who will make it two? Two thousand? And who will make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice. And going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried, We do not quite understand. What changed the worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once and going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. The question is, has he touched you? Have you eaten from the bread of life? So we have our first life-changing truth. Jesus is the great I am. There is another in this passage, and it's this truth that convinced me to use this for Easter Sunday, for Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is not, the, not only the great I am, but he is also the great I will. Look at verse 39 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and, He says, I will raise Him up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and, again, I will raise him up on the last day. Three, four, one more time. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and He finally says, and for the fourth time, I will raise him up on the last day. Although he does speak of the will of the Father in some of these verses, that's not what I'm getting at here. That's not my focus or what I'm stressing. In calling Jesus the great I will, I'm stressing what Jesus will do. That's what I'm stressing. And what Jesus promises is that whoever believes in him, whoever eats the bread of life, will be raised on the last day. You might recall... Following the feeding of the 5,000, Christ Christ sent his disciples out to gather the leftovers, verse 12, chapter 6, verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Likewise, Jesus says in verse 39, I shall lose nothing of all that the Father has given me. All will be raised on the last day. J.C. Rowell writes, Christ will not only justify and pardon, keep and sanctify, He will do even more. He will raise them up on the last day to a life of glory. This promise from Christ reminds us that eternal life is not simply unending existence. It's more than that. This is a very real promise connected to eternal life, the resurrection of our physical bodies. 
Paul tells us God will raise the believer's natural body, this body, the natural body, in the form of a spiritual body. You probably know 1 Corinthians 15, we read from it this morning, James read it to us this morning, is probably the the principal chapter talking about the resurrection. Paul there in 1 Corinthians 15, 44 says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. More specifically, it's our present earthly body that will be transformed into a spiritual body. That's what he's saying in these passages. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You remember Jesus' resurrected body? They touched it and he ate. It was very tangible. Our resurrected body will be like Christ's glorious body. Philippians 3.21 says, Christ will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. These are just some of the details regarding the resurrected resurrection and the resurrected body. An aspect of the resurrection that we, that is a, we don't talk about very often, but maybe especially noteworthy in our day and within our cur- current cultural climate is this, that in the resurrection... We will retain our ethnic and gender distinctions as an interesting point. While Jesus taught that there wouldn't be marriage in heaven, he didn't teach that there wouldn't be men and women. He didn't teach that. Furthermore, it was the ethnicity and the gender that helped Peter, James, and John identify Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration. And they saw these men in their glorified form And since both male and female souls are created in the image of God, both males and females bear the image of God, they will be resurrected into His image, both female and male. Bruce Demarest writes, The God who loves a variety in rocks, flowers, and animals will not reduce the saints to an unrecognizable mass. Racial characteristics will be recognizable features of our identities but our fleshly pride in them will vanish. In heaven, we will experience the joy of loving our ethnically different neighbors as ourselves and the bliss of endlessly multiplying friendships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know about you, but I like the, the idea of the sound of endless bliss. Of course, the only way for Jesus to be the great I will as if he is the great I am. If he is able himself to be raised from the dead, and that's the, the point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Bless you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, those who have died before in Christ, have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, he says. We cannot say the resurrection of Christ is one thing and that my resurrection, our resurrection, is another. We cannot think there is no logical connection between the two. Paul is saying in this passage, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, neither can we, and we're still in our sins. Therefore, and to Paul's point, if Christ has been raised, then we can be raised. James Boyce wrote, True preaching will not let you fool around with Christianity. It will force you to settle the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? The testimony of Scripture is that Jesus did rise from the dead. And that His resurrection not only warrants our resurrection, but His resurrection demands our resurrection. That's why He says, I will raise them on the last day. As we begin to close, I told you this morning we'd see two life-changing truths that lead us into life-changing hope for the future. The first life-changing truth is this, Jesus is the great I am. Yes, this means that Jesus is God, but as John helps us see, it means more than that. It means that He is the source of true sustenance. It means that He will, He who does excuse me, that he will always long for more until we long for him. We will always long for more until we long for him. As Augustine said, our our hearts are restless until we rest. We find our rest in him. Better yet, Jesus said, whoever comes to me shall never, never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never, never thirst. The second life-changing truth is this, Jesus is the great I will. Because Jesus is the great I am, the bread of life, the one who defeated death by escaping the grave, he can say, everyone who looks on the Son, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in me should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. I trust you can see the life-changing hope for the future that arises from these two truths. The author of Hebrews tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie because He is the great I Am. He's incapable of lying. From this truth, he's moved, that is, the author of Hebrews is moved to say, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus went before us in death. He went into the inner place behind the curtain to secure our salvation. And having a perfect life, death could not hold him. And so, I love what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. He taunts death. That's what that is. It's a taunt. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We can taunt death. And this taunt is ours when we eat the living bread. When we look on the Son and believe in Him, 
then we shall not only find the great I am, but we will find the great I will. Amen?